the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Morning, everybody. Great to have visitors here today. It seems like um, what the Lord has given to me this week is in line with everything that's been going on so far. So praise God for that. Just before I start, I was in the Paw, Manitoba this week. And uh, keep the Paw, Manitoba in your prayers. I feel like there's a a revival or something that the Lord is going to be doing there. I met so many Christians this week. Guys that I deal with, um, new people that are in positions that I'm going to be dealing with. Um, people have come there because the Lord gave them a dream and they've ended up there. Uh, it was an amazing week. So I don't know what's happening. They've got a couple of really good churches there. Um, and he's at work. So I, uh, my wife Sue says, uh, and the Lord's doing this thing and somehow here's this, city guy coming in every three months in the middle of this. (laughs) Not sure what's going on, but if there is a revival, she said, we're going. (laughs) So so praise the Lord. Yes. The prodigal. Thanks, Carol, for reading that. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the share 
of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. When I read that, I thought, why would he want his share of the inheritance before the appointed time, or should I say before his father dies? Why, why would he want that? We're going to be talking a lot, and I want you to think about the cultural context of this scripture. In a cultural context, this situation is extraordinary. And it's unprecedented. Usually the inheritance or a child's share of the estate is given upon the death of the father. Sometimes it's given even when the father retires from managing the estate. I'm just going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. I'm just going to read verse 15 to 17. If a man has two wives, the loved and the the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if he the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is this. Younger sons aren't meant to inherit the family estate. Yet you have this son, this younger son, who presumptuously asks for his portion. And he receives it. His behavior showed arrogance, self-centeredness, disregard for his father's authority as the head of the family. It would have brought shame to the family and grief to his father. In our modern context, we completely miss the total, total outrageousness of the younger son by asking for his inheritance while his father was still alive. What was his messaging to his father? Could it have been, I wish you were dead so I could get what's mine? We don't know. But never, never in that culture would a younger son ask for the inheritance, let alone when his father was still alive. One of the commentaries that I read sounded like this. A meek and mild Jesus telling this parable 
to a, a group of mild-mannered folk sitting on the hillside. In reality, though, his storytelling would have been much, much more rowdy and interactive. It is said that we read the text too quickly, and I agree, because I've never read this text in the manner of which I grew to understand it as I was preparing. So here we go. It is... In fact, he would have probably had to pause quite regularly during his storytelling to accommodate the gasp and the shouts of incredulity or disbelief from his original audience. The crowd would have been incandescent or glowing with rage at the behavior of the sun, full of schadenfreude or satisfaction at what was going to happen next to the young son and the baying for his blood as the finale approached. This is a serious, serious thing that the young son has done here in this culture. You have to remember that in this culture, time, and even today in certain cultures, these customs are strict. It's all about respect. Respect for for the place of honor. Respect for the home. Respect for the, the, the old. It's about the law. It's tradition. And you better not break it. Do you remember the story Nathan has to go to King David and uh, bring forward to him about his behavior? Uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan was very cunning and I don't mean that in a a wrong sense of the word. But he just simply said, you know, there was a guy that had lots of sheep and his neighbor only had one. And there was a traveler coming into town. And that neighbor went and took his neighbor's only sheep. What do you think about that? What do you, what do you think should be done about that? Of course, King David is not aware that he's the guy in question. So, being the king and having the power that he has, he says, the Bible says that David's anger was kindled against the man. It was burning hot to the point where he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall die. So David was just angry at that behavior. 
not recognizing he was the guy. But that's not the point. The point is that his anger against this unrighteous thing was kindled. The reason I read the detail of the commentary and mentioned about David's anger, as well in other societies, there's different caste. If you marry outside of the caste, you can be killed for that. Uh, If you leave the religion, you can be killed for that. So some of these things are, are really, really serious in other cultures. Not quite as serious in the North American culture. So one of the reasons, as I mentioned, I was reading that is because I want us to understand really clearly about the depth of this text and to realize as we listen that we are the prodigals. This is our story. This isn't just their story. This is our story. Having said all of that, it still doesn't answer the question as to why would he ask for his share of the estate before his father's appoint, before the appointed time when he should receive it, and in the proper order. Why? <clears throat> he asked for inheritance because he wanted what he wanted. And the motives for why he wanted his inheritance wasn't good. As a matter of fact, they were bad, terrible. It didn't matter if it was against the customs of the culture. He wanted what he wanted, and it was for all the wrong reasons. That's how sin works against us. We want something and we will do whatever it is to get our way. It's a fallen human trait. The other issue is this. We have an adversary. The devil. He will put all things in place for us if we desire and go after the wrong things. If you desire drugs, he can put you around people that do drugs, that sell drugs. You desire pornography? No shortage of that. It's everywhere. Gambling? Well, there's casinos in town, casinos out of town. All the major sports now have sports betting. And people spend a lot of time and money doing it. going to read you something from James. Chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God's Word translation says, 
when you pray for things, you don't get them because you want them for the wrong reason, for your own pleasure. Would this be similar behavior to the prodigal son asking for his inheritance because he was going to live riotously, spending it on things that only bring pain to his life? So it is when we ask God for things that, we, that are not good for us with the wrong motives in mind. just want to share a quick story with you. My life. Don't realize that one of your elders here is a former jailbird. I use that in, in a loose way, but yes, I was in jail. Uh, back in university. You guys don't know this. <laughs> I've never given my testimony here. Um, I was in university in South Dakota on a football scholarship. And um, being with the wrong people at the wrong time. I had accepted some stolen food coupon books from some guys that I was hanging out with. Uh, I'm really condensing the story uh, because there's a lot more to it, but I just want to give you the gist of it. I accepted two stolen food coupon books. Food coupon books are what we use to eat. So you go, you give them a couple of coupons. Of course, I played football, so I was always hungry. So <laughs> I, I didn't understand the magnitude of uh, taking those two food coupon books until we left the dormitory and went to Burger King and I saw the flashing lights of the police um, that had us uh, not lay down on the ground but our hands behind our backs, handcuffed, taken to the county jail. Long story short, I prayed. I remember walking into the jail that night and grabbing a Bible. Um, That was the beginning of the Lord humbling me and starting His work of drawing me to Him. Only problem was, (laughs) I wasn't ready. (laughs) My prayers, my desire were all to... I I had to go before a a student judicial committee. I had to go before the football team. Uh, I lost my scholarship. It was $6,000 a year. Um, It was incredible. It was a huge mess for two stolen food coupon books valued at, I think, maybe $100. Um, All of my prayers was to get back into school. Get back before uh, this committee and prove that I wasn't that guy. Um, They knew that already because I'd never had a parking ticket up until that point in my life. But the gist of it is, all I wanted to do was repair my my, uh, reputation, uh, get back on the football team. I'm not thinking about the Lord at all. Okay? So the parallel to me to this is that the prodigal just wanted to 
to do what He wanted to do. We just want to do what we want to do. And we don't keep that in, in mind with what the Lord wants to do. My prayers weren't focused on, uh, Lord, I, I want to know You. Lord, what are You doing in this? I, I just wanted it for me. I just wanted to feel better. I just wanted to, to not be that guy. We'll talk more about that story, I'm sure, at some other point in time. Verse 13 Sorry, I'm flipping back and forth here. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into our far country. And there he squandered his property, his, his property in reckless living. Riotous living. The reality of this world is this. When there's booze, when there's money, when there's drugs, fame, etc., it's plentiful, so are your friends. When those things dry up, so do the friends. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So the prodigal son has gone from party animal to animal welfare officer. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Verse 8, And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. So pigs were unclean, which meant they couldn't be eaten or used for sacrifices. To protect themselves from defilement, Jews wouldn't even touch pigs. For a Jew to stoop to feeding pigs would be a tremendous humiliation. And for the younger son to eat the food that pigs had touched was to be degraded beyond belief. This young man had truly sunk to the depths. 
Listen to this fascinating cultural insight. The citizen of the country that the young man attaches himself to, we know, is a Gentile. We know that because he has pigs. He is actually trying to get rid of the young man by offering him the pig feeder's job. The young man is known in the community. He arrives with money. He's expected to have a certain amount of self-respect, especially the fact that he was Jewish. One of the polite ways for the Middle Easterner to get rid of unwanted hangers-on would be to assign them a task that he knew they would refuse. But not this prodigal son. His pride was not completely broken yet. To the amazement of the Middle Easterner, the young man says, I'll do it. I'll feed the pigs. The prodigal, in his attempt to regain control of the situation that has gone very badly, spent all his money, he's broke, and now he's starving. Convinces himself that he can still win by working his way back from the very bottom. Anybody ever been there? That was my South Dakota story. I thought I could still do it by getting pardoned by everybody and getting back on the football team, which in reality did happen, but it was a totally different situation, right? But when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So eventually the son realizes that he's going to starve to death. And it's this realization, rather than actual repentance, which drives him to leave the farm and travel back to his father's farm or village. I always used to think that was repentance wasn't even close to repentance. He just came to his mind, what am I doing? I'm starving here and my dad's got all this stuff. Interesting. We know this because of the difference between what he plans to say and what he actually says when confronted with the compassion and the grace of his dad. Let's read in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father... And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See what sin does? It it gets us to not look at the place that we have with the Lord. We look at ourselves differently. Oh, you know, Lord, I... I'm just not your child anymore. I wouldn't do that. The prodigal. Oh, you know what? I'm not your son anymore. Just hire me as as one of your servants. It distorts our thinking. It blinds us. 
It's incredible how sin stops us from seeing the Lord. I've, I've seen it in my own life time and time again. It just, you just lose your vision until you repent and get cleansed. So he, in, in verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am, not, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So what he does is that he leaves out the offer of working as your hired servant. Why does he do that? He said that when I get back there, I'm going to tell him this, and I'm going to tell him, hire me as your hired servant. And then he meets his dad. His dad runs out to meet him. And then he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he forgot the working as a, as a servant. Why does he do that? Why does he leave that out? He leaves it out because he instantly realizes the Father's grace covers any need to try to work his way back into the family. Praise be to God. The Father's grace covers his need to try to work his way back into the family. Even though he was still trying to manipulate and control the situation, when he saw his father's love, he finally surrendered that control. Can someone say amen? amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your unrelenting love to us as your prodigals, Lord. Thank you for that. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. I used to think that the father ran to him because he was just so joyful to see him. And that's part of it. But I see it differently now. For an elderly man in that culture to do what he did, which was run, was extremely unusual and humiliating. Aristotle, the Greek the ancient Greek philosopher said, simply said, great men never run in public. Yet, this father runs not just because he's filled with compassion. In that culture, the Jewish culture, a son who loses his inheritance, especially among Gentiles, would have been subject to a ceremony called a kizaya. A kizaya. K-E-Z-I-H. Kizaya. 
In the village, what they would do is they would have broken a large pot at his feet and yelled at him, telling him he was no longer a part of the family. He was cut off. Any parallels to when they marched Jesus to the Sanhedrin council and when they were marching him to the cross? The spitting, the hurling, all the things you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Come off of that cross if you're the Lord. All that shame. So when the father runs, it's at least partly because he wants to reach his son. Come here for a second. I need a volunteer here. So instead of subjecting him to the utter shame of the Keziah, he embraces him and he's walking with him into the village. He gets to his son before the people of the village. Thanks. Before the people of the village have a chance to get to his son. Isn't that incredible? He runs there to get him to spare him from that. That that act shows the village that his son is forgiven and then moves quickly to restore him through the killing of the fattened calf. That would have been a moment that the audience that was watching this, their heads would have been spinning because they would have wanted blood. They would have wanted to break those jars and tell him and disown him and and let him get what he deserved. The entire village would have attended that feast that night. And the son who was dead is made alive again. But the father, thanks Dan, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Praise God. A more cultural studies approach provides depth and shows the absolute brilliance of Scripture. I don't know why Jesus just said it as simply as he said it. But there's always way more to what Jesus said says. I pray that we can all dig deeper into his word to extract out every possible morsel of truth that we can get so that we it can be further revealed to us the awesomeness 
of the God and Savior we serve, Jesus Christ, who did the same thing for us when He laid down His life and bore the shame of being crucified. The Lord spared us from the Keziah. Cursed is anyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13 Jesus was cursed for us. Praise God. I'm going to leave it there for now. The Lord bless you. We're going to partake in communion.